Hi, I'm County Executive Barry Glassman. And whether you're on the go, in the car, or at your desk, the Conduit Street Podcast delivers your accurate local news. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you? Obviously, we are still social distancing. Another week of podcasts, another week of doing this remotely. But how are you and the family holding up? Um, everybody's doing okay here. Everybody seems to be getting into a groove. Uh, I've got kids at home who are working through their online learning, doing their assignments and so forth. So I don't know. This week is feeling a little more ordinary than last. So I guess that's a good thing. How about you? Yeah, I feel like as we go, it, it becomes a little more ordinary. But yeah, it's still still odd not to be in the office. But I, you know, everybody's healthy, happy here, so can't complain. Good, good. All right, this week on the podcast, we're going to tie up some loose ends from last week. We had a special guest, David Juppé. We talked about a lot of fiscal issues. We just want to make some clarifications there. Then we'll get into Congress and how Congress is addressing this pandemic, especially in terms of federal aid. And then we'll talk about some quirky issues, how that federal aid is being distributed in Maryland. And we'll talk about education funding and a weird timing when it comes to maintenance of effort, Michael. That's a phrase that our listeners may be familiar with, but we'll get into all that. So first of all, I mentioned last week we had David Juppé on, obviously a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all things fiscal. But we do want to clarify a couple things from last week, Michael, because all this is super wonky and we want to make sure we get it right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of our thoughts was we wanted to have Dr. Juppé join us in part because, I mean, this is a guy who did his doctoral thesis on best practices for maintaining reserve funds at the state government level. So, you know, we're talking about that kind of stuff in Maryland now. He had some interesting and maybe provocative thoughts about how states ought to be doing that. I think that was an interesting conversation. It also felt a right to get into this, the trigger provision in the Kerwin school funding bill, this, this catchphrase that got into the final bill saying, okay, you know, if revenues drop off a cliff, then that year's provisions won't take effect and we'll just do a cost of living adjustment. Everybody seems like they understand what that was supposed to mean, but reading it word for word left us with some questions that we couldn't answer last week. But I don't know, a byproduct of having a conversation on a medium like this is we get some people around town who listen to it, had some insights to chip in, and I think we can we can clarify and fill in some of the missing pieces in that puzzle that uh, that we left open as of last week. So let's do that. So you mentioned the trigger provision. We talked about the Board of Revenue Estimates last week. They make adjustments and estimates throughout the year in terms of what the state revenues are going to be. We mentioned that the two most important estimates are March and December, and that is true. But we also talked about a multi-year estimate, Michael, in March. And I think we said we didn't believe that they actually made one this year, but that's not exactly true, is it? Well, I guess that's that's the missing piece here that left us collectively scratching our heads and chins last last week as we recorded was saying the trigger provision in the Kerwin bill takes two snapshots in March 
and then the subsequent December and uses a potential drop-off in general fund revenue between those two estimates as what would activate this trigger provision and say, okay, it's an austerity time, so we're not going to spend the money. The idea was it seems to be referencing an FY22 projection in the official revenue estimates prepared in March of 2020, just several weeks ago. Dr. Juppé, a longtime fiscal staffer with the General Assembly, this hasn't been his primary beat, but he's been a budget watcher and, and a manager of budget issues for a number of years. He said, you know, when they release those numbers in March, it doesn't seem to have a multi-year forecast. It's always been the tool we need to balance this year's budget to. So in March of 20, everybody just sees the FY21 numbers because that's that's the budget everybody's hammering out right at the moment. So sure, we were that left makes saying, sense. Yeah, we were left saying, if there's no multi-year forecast, how can you pin a difference based on the out year? So it turns out they do make a multi-year estimate in March, but they just don't publish it for whatever reason, right? Yeah, I think that's that's the bottom line. And I, I mean, it, it makes a certain degree of sense what everybody's drumming their fingers and waiting. Do we have to make changes to the budget plan that's already underway in the General Assembly. So everybody dwells on the immediate fiscal year um, and no one pay, pays a whole lot of it moment to an out year forecast, but it's in the fine print in March. So that, that satisfies our sort of lingering question. Well, are they gonna have to read between the lines? Answer is no, they're just gonna have to dig into the fine print of a report that already is assembled and published. So that's cleaner and easier. So mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, that that makes the language of the Kerwin trigger provision more workable than we were afraid it might be. So the clear intent of this trigger and, and is to affect the mandate for the budget that's being built right after the December estimate. So that puts March through December of this year in play. It would affect fiscal year 22. So what would that do, Michael, in terms of fiscal year 22? So we, we got into the weeds on this, on what might count and what might not count um, for, for purposes of the way this trigger is calculated. But let's assume that we've got economic distress that has us thinking that fiscal year 22 is not going to be as rosy as we thought back in this past March. So by the time there's a formal revision this coming December, if it's down by more than that 7.5% number, then... It, it, I think the simplest reading of this bill is that puts the budget they need to assemble in the 2021 session, that's the fiscal 22 budget, that puts that requirement in, in sort of a, you know, it, it freezes it and says we, it's not going to be required because the trigger has been satisfied. It's, this isn't a letter for letter reading. It, you, there's a couple of this year and next year references that are Maybe not ideal, but I think that seems to be what the trigger was meant to say, and, and it was certainly how it was described, particularly on the floor of the Senate. So what we're talking about is the first year of real funding in the Kerwin bill. That's in the budget they got to cut next year, you know, roughly a year from now. And that's meaningful numbers, right? That's, as I recall, that's close to $400 million is the first step in this big, you know, you know, multi-year rollout to get to about $4 billion. Right. So about $400 million is what is in play 
just for one year in fiscal 22. So if this trigger was to take effect, that would that is what is on the table for fiscal 22. We also talked about, you know, this would not apply unless you continued to fall off the cliff, right? So you'd have to keep falling off the cliff every single year and drop Another by seven and a half percent, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So it's, I mean, the way it's written, it's not enough that you stay at the base of the cliff you already fell off. You would need to fall off a second cliff for FY23 to have the austerity measures kick in again. Otherwise, you're right back to where the funding requirement would have been for that year. So, you know, that'll be a fiscal challenge for, for long-term purposes. But it's possible that this trigger may indeed grant some relief for the budget year that, you know, the next time budgeteers in Annapolis are required to sit down and do an annual fiscal plan. That makes sense. I think that's a good way to clean that up. I also want to talk about the trigger mechanism itself and the politics in Annapolis. There was a piece this week in Maryland Matters. You had a bunch of quotes from fiscal leaders, including Nancy King, who actually introduced this amendment, this trigger amendment. And Senator King was quoted as saying that she didn't see how we could start to implement these numbers with the state that our economy is in, with the revenue losses that we're going to incur here in Maryland. But we also know that we're starting to see a movement from advocates for the Kerwin Commission's legislation to actually have the General Assembly come back and repeal that trigger provision. So you're seeing fiscal leaders talking about it's going to be very hard to make this work with the state that we're in. But you also see the advocates on the other side who are completely 180 different in their approach saying, actually, they need to come back and repeal that provision. And we need to make this the number one priority moving forward. Right. So I, I guess it's not a big surprise that we would see both supporters and critics of this whole plan from a fiscal perspective have basically reinvigorate the whole debate. I mean, the bill has passed the General Assembly. It's pending action by the governor. It hasn't even been enacted yet. And there's already groups strategizing how to amend the trigger provision out so the 22 money stays. There's already groups calling for the entire thing to be junked as unaffordable. So, you know, you think the General Assembly is done. They drop their confetti and then everybody goes home and you either lick your wounds or you clink your glasses. Uh, in this case, the debate just seems to be continuing in, in part because our fiscal forecasts are now so cloudy that uh, everybody who is saying, can we afford this for 10 years, are saying that, you know, even more aggressively than before, maybe. Yeah, and I think we should also mention, as we record on Tuesday, April 21st, yesterday, the leadership of the General Assembly announced that they will not be coming back in May for a special session. I think we kind of predicted that that wouldn't happen. They could come back later on, maybe in the fall. The governor would need to call them back, but they're not coming back in May. That was the big news yesterday. Right. And it's it's sort of, I don't know, maybe the, the worst kept secret <laughs> around Annapolis that I think almost every right. stakeholder felt like they made a pledge that we intend to come back, but they never like signed formal papers saying we're going to do it. Here's the declaration and all this kind of stuff. They just said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll think we'll come back later in the spring after things have pulled off and tend to things we didn't get to. And First of all, they got to more than they probably expected those last several days of the General Assembly session. I, I lost count, but it was hundreds and hundreds of bills actually got passed. Right. So 
you know, the need to go do a whole lot of cleanup is probably lessened as a result of that. Um, and, you know, obviously it doesn't feel like the situation on the ground would warrant bringing a lot of people back to be in a face-to-face group environment, face all those questions again about transparency and public participation to do, you know, in all candor, to do what, right? right. What, what, you know, what, what can't wait till January? Right. That's fair. They did. They made the announcement that they would would, would come back in May before they realized how much they got done. So I think that's yeah. a, a good analysis. And certainly I agree that they did get a lot more done than maybe they expected to. So we'll have to see. It could be fall. It could be January. We'll keep you updated there. So, Michael, let's jump in now to Washington and yeah. Congress. We'll shift gears from a political body that we kind of understand to a political body that we can be honest, we have no real understanding of. No, and that's typical. Uh, you know, you, I think you'd be hard pressed to find many people who know exactly what is going on and can predict what's going to happen with Congress. But let's talk about Congress and their response to this pandemic when it comes to federal aid. This week, Michael, they're expected to pass the COVID nineteen stimulus package three point five. Before we, but before we talk about that, let's talk about what they've done so far to address the pandemic. So. In less than four weeks, they did approve, and the president signed into law three bills totaling more than $2 trillion worth of aid from the federal government. And when it comes to Congress, you could say that's pretty impressive to get all that done in just four weeks, especially with the way Congress operates. That obviously includes the the CARE Act that we saw in late March. That included $150 billion for state and local stimulus funds, $500 billion for industry, local governments and states, $367 billion for small businesses, hospitals, and of course those $1,200 checks for most Americans. And so now that brings us to this week. We think, again, as we're here on Tuesday, that the Senate could act as early as today, the House will follow, and they could potentially get stimulus package 3.5 done. And Michael, I know there's there's a process here, and let's get into that because it's interesting in terms of how they need to get this moving when they're not actually in town. Right. So that's that's the biggest sort of moving part here is we've we've seen for the last several days very aggressive and very active negotiations between congressional leaders and uh, representatives from the administration, the Department of Treasury and other leaders in, you know, from the White House, working with mostly the Democratic leadership in the Congress. But really, this needs to be an all-hands-on-deck deal because, I mean, as, as we've you know, read in headlines, that we're not, breaking, we're not breaking the news here, but we've read in the headlines that a number of these pots of relief funds have already dried up. And there are you know, worrisome stories, particularly about small businesses who filed a timely application to get, you know, I need, I need $40,000 so I don't go belly up. And I just need to pay the rent and pay my essential staff while I'm not selling any pizzas. And right. it turns out the funds are dried up from those, from those accounts, from this round of funding. The need was just more than anticipated and maybe a wider swath of the universe got their hands on these funds than we might have guessed. There's big politics there, as as with everything in Washington. But there's a real sense of urgency. We want to do a 3.5, meaning we already passed bills one, two, and three. Most of the money money provisions were in bill number three, so they call that CARES three. 
to do a 3.5, this is almost like software developers, you start doing numbers for the iterations of your project. Rather than going to four, meaning it would be a new bill, the idea here is to use a, a tricky technical provision called unanimous consent. And hmm. the Congress has the ability to modify something it's already passed without coming back into formal session. But the condition, the word's right there, unanimous, every single member of the Congress has to be okay with the change. And that is, so, in yeah, most respects, yeah. unfathomable, right? I mean, and let's remember what we're talking about here. So you mentioned the CARES Act, a lot of money there for small businesses, like you said. The Republicans in the Senate, it seems they just wanted to replenish the funds that had run dry for small business, right? That that was the general idea. That's when you talk about amending something that they've already done, using unanimous consent. But of course, you know, there are all there's all sorts of other funds that are needed. And so trying to get every single member of the Congress to agree on anything seems impossible. But it does sound like, Michael, they're going to be able to do something this week. Yeah, I think I think the urgency of the issue makes sense here. Um, the, the, the Senate and the U.S. House apparently don't plan to reconvene in D.C. for about two more weeks, but they like to make this change before that. So you put into a package something that everybody can agree to, and then there are already talks about what's going to be in a round four that will come some weeks down the road. So if you're, if you're trying to take a temperature in D.C., it seems to be we need some immediate fixes and we also know that package number three wasn't up to the long-term task that seems to be ahead of us. So let's do the unanimous fine-tuning now, and then when we get to round four, we'll be talking about around, you know, other stuff. Now, everybody wants their pet project to be in the immediate part, but the, the requirement that it be unanimous makes it hard to squeak in a little of this and a little of that and have absolutely nobody stand up and say, I don't like this and I don't like that. So the list will probably be short. You know, ordinarily, if Congress uses unanimous consent, it's things like, oh, we passed a bill renaming a post office, but we misspelled the name of the woman we're trying to name it after. So please, everybody by unanimous consent, it was supposed to be IE instead of EI, and everybody's fine with it, right? That's the kind of thing you can get unanimous consent on ordinarily. Here, we're going to try and get an awful lot of camels through that particular eye of the needle. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I think it, it lays out what's really on the table at this point. And again, on Tuesday here about 1 o'clock, it sounds like what's going to be in 3.5 is going to be, of course, replenishing the funds for small business aid, some aid for hospitals, and potentially some aid for COVID-19 testing. We know that is a big issue. But what is not in 3.5, Michael, and what we were hoping to see is aid for state and local governments, which is essential. We mentioned in the CARES Act, there was money for state and local governments, but the key there is that that money was only to address costs associated directly with this pandemic. It didn't do anything to address the revenue losses that we know are piling up at the state and local level. So money is desperately needed to backfill those losses. We know Governor Hogan, as chair of the National Governors Association, he called for $500 billion in state aid for and local governments 
that is an idea that does certainly have bipartisan support. Obviously, revenues are down, expenditures are up. And we saw Democrats in Congress calling for $150 billion, I think, was the last number I saw as part of this 3.5. Doesn't sound like that's going to make it in. But you mentioned a potential fourth package. We've heard talk about there being some deal with infrastructure to pump up infrastructure funding. I'm not sure, and I don't think we're sure how that all plays out, but it's clear that we do need money at the state and local level. I saw New York State yesterday said that without aid, they'll be forced to slash their state budget by up to 20%. You're right. talking about education, public safety, health, all of the essential functions that are provided to the state and local level. So it's very clear and it's disappointing that that state and local aid is not included in 3.5, but hopefully we'll see a fourth package. I know that the National Association of Counties, local government associations across the country are pushing for that, but unanimous consent, as you said, Michael, makes this very difficult. So it seems like you're going to get essential funding that's needed right now, but there's not an agreement on state and local funding at the moment. Yeah, I think that's probably where the needle is as we speak and as we record on Tuesday. Um, this has been moving very rapidly. And if we were trying to record something on this past Sunday or this past Friday, I would have been saying different things. We've been working closely with the National Association of Counties and with counterparts from other states, particularly those who have a, a big bipartisan delegation in Congress. Um, everybody's been trying to message on this. Uh, at one point, it looked like we were really in play for some support to get right back to local governments uh, to help with lost revenue. Be and it's that's a tricky argument to make because it sounds like there's just sort of this big square that says government, and it's just asking for money. But you already framed that correctly. It's like what we need the money for is we can continue to pay our first responders and that we can buy the protective equipment so that our people who are out facing public are safe and that we can do things for, you know, to prop up local businesses in a more targeted way than any federal program can. I mean, all these sort of things have become to some degree a state responsibility to a large degree, a local responsibility where once again, we're where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, sometimes that's going to be a, you know, a rubber boot of a first responder who's out deployed on the street helping people in need during this crisis. So, you know, we're 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 trying to fight so we don't lose the lifeline for the things that everybody needs the most right now. And I you, you know, unanimous consent is obviously a big part of this, but I also want to talk about why Congress is drawing this out. Unanimous consent, obviously a big deal, obviously a part of this. But we've heard leaders in Washington say that they will consider funding for state and local governments. It's going to have to wait until a fourth package. Congress is set to come back to D.C. in early May. So you could expect that the talks for that fourth package would begin then. But I also think there are a couple reasons why this gets so muddied up when you're talking about passing these massive bills there are two things that come to mind for me, Michael. Number one is pork. Number two is politics. I want to get your perspective on why riders really muddy the waters when Congress is trying to move a significant piece of legislation like this. And then also let's talk about how politics is coming into play when it comes to providing money for state and local governments. So, I mean, one thing, if we've got listeners who are principally focused on state and local policy, and in particular, they're, you know, residents or denizens in, in Maryland, and that's where you focused. 
you've probably heard us talk about things like the single subject rule. In Maryland, there's a specific prov provision in law that when you pass legislation, it all has to be about one topic. What you can't do is take a popular bill on topic A and say, well, I have topic Q over here and I'd like to get that little thing done. So I'm going to amend my entire bill onto this other bill. And it's unrelated, but you know, this is my way to get the vote for it. You can't do that in Maryland. The attorney general will advise the governor the bill is unconstitutional and governors have vetoed bills in the past on grounds they violate the single subject rule. Congress is the opposite. Congress has no such rule and can pass bundles of things together. They do so all the time. And when a big package of things gathers momentum and starts to become a consensus, that's an opportunity for lots of odds and ends to get hung on there. Here's you know funding for a particular project, or here's some small provision that several people really wanted and so forth. These things can be critically important to a given district or to a given state. But, and sometimes that's the way these things get done. If this is a big deliverable, if you're from Alaska and you needed X, Y, and Z, uh, lo and behold, here comes X and Z at least, and you got them in because that was your condition of getting in on the big bill. So this is par for the course in Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Congress. It can be frustrating for those of us who are used to watching maybe a cleaner process with a little less of this you know, oh, wow, the list of things that are in this bill that are unrelated to the central cause seems long and offensive, but sometimes that's what, it, you know, it's the cost of rallying a majority. Right. And so obviously the riders play a big part in the debate when people see certain things get inserted into to critical legislation, they're going to balk. The other interesting piece here is the politics. And most of this has to do with the state economies. We've heard the president He's very antsy to open up, quote unquote, open up the country. We know that everybody is reeling at this point. Businesses are shuttered. Everyone is locked up in their home. They're practicing social distancing. And public health experts have said, look, that's what we need to do. We need to do this right. We need to make sure that we've flattened this curve and then just make sure that this doesn't continue to spread. There are differing opinions on the right timeline there. But I think it's interesting when it comes to money for the states. You and I were talking about this, and I think other people have as well, but the president certainly is asking governors to go ahead and open up where they can. And I think the president has acknowledged that, hey, maybe in some areas you can't open as quickly as you, I'd like you to, and maybe some states can. But do you think there are any politics at play here not including money for the states? Does that give the president and other leaders in Washington some leverage over governors when it comes to asking them to get things rolling in their local economies. So I guess, you know, we're we're used to making dismissive statements like everything in DC and everything in Congress ends up painted deep red and deep blue and that becomes part of the problem. They they rarely find consensus and there's always political and partisan angles to even the most seemingly basic questions. Here, there's, a, I guess, a new dynamic, and that's what you're hedging up against, is it, it seems to me that the dynamic between the current president and the current batch of governors, some of this is a red-blue split, but it's not exclusively so. Even, even yesterday, we've seen friction between the president and Governor Hogan from Maryland. They, they share a party designation, but they find themselves maybe saying some different things about 
the 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 pace of reopening the economy and things of that nature. So, mm-hmm. um, the the tension between the goals of the federal administration and the plans and statements of state governments and state governors seems like it has a role here because it's an obvious piece of this puzzle that states are in dire need of help. And so they're in a position to ask the federal government for assistance. That's got to happen. And that, in theory, now creates leverage for the federal administration. Um, You give away that leverage if suddenly you write a big check and say, here's $500 billion, that should satisfy everything that governors out there need. So, I mean, sadly, we might be in that spot where we've made a good policy case, but we're caught up in a peculiar sort of singular brand of politics right now. Fascinating for sure. We'll go ahead and leave it there. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about that federal funding, how it is slated to be distributed in Maryland, and we'll get into quirky timing when it comes to education funding here in Maryland and amid this pandemic, all that and more. Hi, this is Brian Griffiths, the founder of Maryland Podcast Month. Maryland Podcast Month was founded in 2018 to draw attention to all of the great podcasts and podcasters here in Maryland. And during this time of social distancing, there is no better time to start learning more about locally produced podcasts. Shows like my podcast, Red Maryland Radio, I on Annapolis, the Conduit Street Podcast, JB's Drive-In Podcast, the Maryland Crabs, Quality Time, the Society Fringe Players, and more are still putting out fresh content. Visit MarylandPodcastMonth.com to learn more about these great Maryland podcasts. That's MarylandPodcastMonth.com. And we thank you for your support of local content. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, on the front half, we talked about federal aid to state and local governments. We talked about the CARES Act, where money is starting to flow down to the state and local level. And I think it's important that we mention Maryland's plan for distributing $364 million of local aid. And there is some quirky language when it comes to how this is being rolled out. I think it's, 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 it's fair and it's important to mention that the administration is really trying to figure things out on the fly, as is everybody else. They're trying to make sure they do this the right way. But, Michael, talk about the plan for distributing this local aid to the local governments across the state of Maryland. In, in general, uh, this starts at the federal level. So the federal government did their round three CARES bill, the what we've just been referencing and the, the piece that they're trying to shape up. And at the federal level, they drew a line and said local jurisdictions with a half million population are big enough that we're going to send them an allocation directly. And everybody smaller than that. The federal government doesn't want to bother with sorting out which town gets this and which county gets that. Instead, we'll hand it to the state. We'll give some guidance in general that this is supposed to be 45% local funding. So you figure out who the right players are, how to distribute it, and you know that can be a state decision. So Maryland put the pieces of that puzzle together last week. The $364 million represents federal funds coming through the state, pass through to the local governments other than the, I guess it's five large counties, Baltimore City and County, Montgomery and Prince George's 
and Anne Arundel got direct distributions. I think everybody else is below half a million in population and therefore are part of this 364 split up. So that's th those are the, the moving pieces of how we got to where we are. And the letter lays out sort of how the money is going to come out. And it's not a giant shock, but no surprise, there's a little bit of devil in the details here. All right. So 19 counties we're talking about are going to chop up this $364 million of local distributions. The other five larger counties got money directly from the federal government. You mentioned a letter from the Department of Budget and Management that sort of set forth the plan for distributing the, the federal CARES funding. One thing that's interesting to me is that the money is actually just directed to local health departments, Michael, and half of it, I guess, correct? And the other half right. to counties and municipalities directly who are incurring new costs as they're combating this crisis. But it is interesting that you're, you're distributing money to the local health departments because I don't know that they have the capacity, nor do they want to have to sort of figure out how to do all of this stuff. I'm not sure that they have the infrastructure in place to do that. But talk about why you think half of the money was sent directly to them instead of just to the county governments who obviously are overseeing all of this response directly. Okay, well, as far as the counties and the local health departments, there's two issues here, uh, one of which mostly makes sense and one of which I think doesn't and probably needs to be smoothed out. So first of all, the decision to send a good deal of these resources to local health departments makes sense on a certain level. They're, they're the ones who are running clinics. They're the ones who, if, if a jurisdiction is out trying to procure protective equipment and so forth, a pretty good chance that's going through the local health department. They have more expertise and more infrastructure for the health parts of this crisis. So if your county needs to go out and rent a facility to become, you know, to become an adjunct medical facility for people in need or to keep non-COVID patients out of your hospital, that's probably going to happen through public health funding and sending that kind of stuff through the health departments makes sense. Right. What, where, where we have some potentially cross switches, though, are, are with some intimations in what we got from the State Department of Budget Management that the health departments would actually really ride herd over all this funding, including stuff that's not public health at all. So if the county government is renting a facility so that volunteer firefighters have a space to assemble safely and store their gear and so forth, that's really not a, a local health department responsibility at all. It's the county government spending money. That's what the other half of this allocation is about, local government spending. Um, it's a little bit weird, but the way this seems to have been phrased suggested the county's going to have to run to the, like the finance officer in your local health department and get her to organize all this funding and do all the drafting of checks and so forth. And like the last thing we want to do right now is overburden our public health professionals with stuff that they don't have expertise in. I mean, they're, they're trying to save lives right now. Let's let them do what they do best. County governments can handle the idea of we had to draft a check for this. Here's who it went to and here's what it's for. 
So th this is not interesting and sexy stuff, but it down in the details, like making sure we can do this expeditiously and reasonably makes sense. So I think we're hopeful in the days ahead, we'll get that process stuff smoothed out. But half the money to health officers for true health, sure. Half the money for local governments for everything else, sure. But let's not put everything under one umbrella and have the health department sort of the local czar of everything. Right. And I know that I've been fielding questions from counties in terms of eligible costs and what costs would be considered eligible, who is going to determine whether or not those costs are eligible. MAKO sent a letter today to the Department of Budget Management on behalf of our members of the 24 counties requesting some clarity there. And I think, Michael, you can speak to this. You wrote the letter. The clarity is mostly to do with what's eligible. It's it's that quirky issue you mentioned with local health departments. But then there's also a piece, and you mentioned earlier, with volunteer firefighters. And I know that that was uh, a significant portion of the letter. I think you were talking with county leaders yesterday and drafted this letter after speaking with them. Talk a little bit about that and, and Mako's letter. I know that we've had good communication throughout this crisis with the administration and with legislative leaders. Is this letter that, that Mako sent mostly clarifying and trying to work with the administration to make sure we get this right? And as you mentioned, we don't overburden the folks who are on the front lines trying to save lives right now. Yeah, I, I'm optimistic this is going to work in a positive direction. And this is this is how it's supposed to work. We, we, you've heard from financial people. I've heard from county elected officials that the mechanics of this don't seem perfect and nobody wants, I mean, nobody wants red tape to be a, a problem in responding to a public health crisis. You know, we can't afford a two-week delay because paperwork needed to be signed. So, yeah, I, I think we'll get this sorted out expeditiously. I think Secretary Brinkley and his staff at Budget and Management want to do the right thing and get this ironed out. So I'm optimistic it'll work out. Mako's just trying to serve our members and, and make sure everybody knows what makes sense here. So the best thing that can happen is the state agency continues to say, you know, under the federal law, here's what you're allowed to spend the money for. The way we interpret it is these seven things are all okay. These four things are not okay. So if you need to do that, that won't be reimbursable. And we go from there. So that's what we're looking for. There's going to be a number of categories where the county says, I think I need to do this, but I don't have the cash. My budget's falling apart. And unless I can use the federal funds for it, I don't have any way to commit that $600,000. Well, getting a piece of paper from the state saying it's going to be on the list, it's okay, go do the thing, that's going to be the tool we need in hand to make the right call right now. Great way to put it. And another issue that we, Mako has weighed in on in another letter to the governor, legislative leaders in the State Department of Education has to do, Michael, with maintenance of effort. And we've talked extensively, I think, about maintenance of effort on this podcast. The general idea is that you have to fund at least what you funded last year in terms of education funding. You can't drop below last year's number. There are many different technical pieces with maintenance of effort, including uh, escalators and whatnot, but I don't think we need to get too technical here. The bottom line has to do with the waiver process, correct? Sort of right. walk us through what the issue is here and why we're raising it right now. So shifting gears substantially here, um, but as we wrap up talking about what to do with these federal funds, we leave on a note of uncertainty that we know we know revenues are, are in the midst of taking a big plunge. We don't know for how long and how deep 
and what shape the recession might take. So all that is a big question mark. If you're a county budget officer, and Kevin, you've been on the phone with this group, seems like, you know, two, three times a week now, um, they're all wringing their hands saying, I'm trying to prepare a vanilla budget for next year, but I don't even have faith that that's really accurate. I don't know where we're going to be. Amidst all this, we've got a one-shot every year opportunity that if your county doesn't think you can fund your required school funding level in the following year, maintenance of effort, if you don't think you can do it, you have to prepare a packet of information and make the case to the State Board of Education. They have the ability to say, okay, we agree your county can do $1.2 million less because we ran all the numbers that you shared with us, and we agree that's a reasonable allowance to give you. That's the only way you get out of maintenance of effort being absolute. And the only time you can do it is by, interestingly enough, April 20th. Yesterday. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that, that timing has never been perfect because we have counties at various stages in their budget proposal and planning and public hearings and so forth. Different places are on different timetables. But this year, it seems almost uniquely, comically poorly timed to, to try and ask a county budget officer, hey, can you put together a 20-page uh, presentation telling us exactly what your revenues are going to look like? for fiscal year 2021, we want to know to the nickel and tell us precisely how much wiggle room you think you need with your school budget for next year as a result of that. And it would be a 20-page document of question marks. Mm -hmm. That's the best you could do right now. You could could take a stab and say, we think we're going to go down 6% or 16% or 26%, but there's no one out there who knows what this is going to look and feel like. Right. It all depends on how long this lasts. And you know, I think you said it, vanilla budgets, I think you're going to see, and we are seeing a lot of asterisks on in-county budgets right now. And I do want to make clear too, no county out there right now is planning to go below maintenance of effort. But as you said, nobody knows what this is going to mean in terms of revenues. And it all depends on the timeline here, how long businesses are closed down, how long people aren't working, that all affects the revenues that are coming in in terms of income taxes, hotel taxes, recordation taxes, admissions and amusement, you name it. It's hard to know what things are going to look like in fiscal 21. So MAKO has been communicating with the administration, with leaders in the General Assembly, the State Board of Education, sort of just planting the flag here, right, and making sure that they understand that this timeline, April 20th, is comically, uh, it's not going to work, okay? We don't know what this means yet. So I think planting the flag makes a lot of sense there. Again, nobody right now is planning to go below maintenance of effort. I don't believe that any county submitted a waiver request, but in the months to come, assuming that this does go on for a while and revenues really do take a, a monstrous hit, more so than maybe some counties think right now, you could be in a really tough spot with no way to ask for relief from the state. And by the letter of the law, you're really stuck because you mentioned that's really the only way this waiver is is the only way that you can relieve yourself of that obligation in the short term. Right. So, I mean, it's it's a it's a strange thing to do to to point out what seems like a systemic flaw. I mean, this process just doesn't serve the situation we're all in right now well. So the best we could do was Mako sends a letter. I mean, if there's a mess, if there's a simple message in that letter, it's 
you're probably not going to get any waiver requests here in April. But please don't whistle past the graveyard thinking that because they didn't show up with timely, specific requests, that there's not a problem for next fiscal year. And we easily could find ourselves in whatever, you know, October, December, whenever, where counties are looking at that year's budget already underway and saying, we have to make a 12% cut in the entire county budget. And if the 55% 55 of our budget that goes right to the schools is off limits, now that just became a 26% cut on the rest of the budget or something like that. I mean, that's, you know, that's the kind of math we could easily be looking at. None of this is going to be easy and figuring out how to square peg some reasonable solution if we're really hip deep in a serious immediate fiscal crisis is going to require something more than, you know, <laughs> something more than just, well, make it work, folks. Right. So I think we've gotten some good feedback so far. I think, look, I think the state understands the predicament that not only they are in, but also local governments across the state. I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to work collaboratively to respond, to get our economies going again. And the only way you can do that is to work collaboratively. And of course, we need that federal funding as well, tying this all up in this episode. But, you know, Michael, I think we can leave it there. But I think moving forward, we should shift a little bit. We've been talking a lot about fiscal issues. Of course, it's very important. A lot of folks wondering right now what's happening at the federal level when this money is going to flow through, how it's going to be distributed. Hopefully we've laid all that out. I'll also mention that I will link a number of Conduit Street blog articles to this episode. We break down that maintenance of effort waiver process. We talk all about the CARES funding and what Congress is up to right now, how that's all going to play out. But maybe for our next episode, we need to get Natasha in here, who is the health expert, because we are, of course, in a health crisis. And as much as we love to talk fiscal issues and as important as they are for all of our membership and, and I'm sure the listeners of this podcast, we should probably pivot on our next episode. What do you think? I, I think it'd be a it'd be a good for us to take sort of take a breather on the fiscal stuff. I mean, fiscal consequences are not the only issue, of course, right? Every every family and every business is experiencing all the social and public health effects of what we're going through. That's affecting county governments and our communities as well. There's some criminal justice issues here that are relevant and timely for Maryland and, you know, and, and some other legal issues in, in the bigger picture that are worth talking about. So um, let's, let's, let's bring on our friend and colleague, Natasha, and talk through a longer list of things that you and I tend not to get to when we just put on the green eye shades like this. Yeah, we, we, we tend to miss some of those, but there are some very important issues that are not fiscal related, obviously, that are happening now in Maryland and across the country. So we'll get Natasha in here next time. But I do think it was worth tying up some issues from last week and sort of going through what's happening right now at the federal and state level when it comes to trying to dig ourselves out of the fiscal crisis that we are at least knee deep in at this point. And hopefully we don't get too much higher, but, it, it, you know, certainly things can, can get a lot worse quick. All good here. All right. That'll do it for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be sent directly to you. We are on all the major platforms. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for now, for Michael Sanderson, Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>